0: Well, having spent uh, two messages thinking about the subject of heaven, tonight I want to ask the question what difference does thinking about heaven actually make? Let me first ask this question Does it make a negative impact? Some actually think that it does. Some suppose that it will. Some will say that if you think about heaven, it's pretty much useless because when you go through the scriptures, the scriptures do not say much about heaven, so it's a useless endeavor. To which I would respond by saying, not much, however you quantify that, is not the same as nothing. So there are things in God's word about heaven. So if you say there's not much in God's word about about heaven, that's not the same as saying there's nothing in God's word about heaven. And are we not edified by thinking about what God has revealed in his word on any topic that is addressed in his word? I would argue, yes, we are. So I reject the notion that thinking about heaven is not helpful because the Bible does not say, quote, unquote, much about it. I think it says a decent amount about it, and we're going to consider some more of it tonight. And then there's those who would say that thinking about heaven simply implants a person's thinking in the clouds making them, as it were, perpetual daydreamers and among the most slothful of professing Christians. Now, if there are such professing Christians who just think about heaven all day and do nothing else, I have not met one of those, but if they do exist, then I would exhort such a one that thinking about heaven is not an excuse for spiritual laziness. Rather, thinking about heaven should actually be a motivation for Christian labor. And I would remind you that just because some people can think about a subject wrongly doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it rightly. Just because someone can take a beautiful subject like the doctrine of heaven and not apply it correctly does not mean that we should not think about it rightly and apply it as a motivation for praise and for worship and for comfort and for godly living. And so with that being said, I want to present to you tonight five reasons that we ought to think about heaven. Are there more than five reasons? You better believe it. But for the purposes of time, we are going to consider five reasons. We're going to consider the difference that heaven makes, and we're going to consider five of them. First, I want you to know that thinking about heaven can help you remember who you truly are. Thinking about heaven can help you remember who you truly are. And there are many words in the scriptures that can help you know who you, are truly, who you truly are in the here and now that you're a son or daughter of God, that you are redeemed, that you are chosen, that you are loved, and so on. There's different language that we could use to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ Jesus. But a word that we might not readily associate with ourselves is the word sojourner. You and I are sojourners. We are travelers. We are pilgrims who are passing through, as it were. Robert Layton lived from 1611 to 1684. He was an archbishop in Scotland who, among other things, sought to bring um, to uh, the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians closer to agreement with one another and so on. He said during his life that if he had the power to choose a place to die in, he would die in an inn. He thought it was an appropriate place for a pilgrim's going home. He said in the world, he thought, that the world was like a large and noisy inn, as it were, and that he himself was a wayfarer, a stranger, a pilgrim who was passing through, going through this life and making his way to his father's house. Interestingly, in God's providence, God actually granted him that desire. And he died in 1684 in an inn, the Bell Inn on Warwick Lane. He was staying there during a trip to London. And then he had pleurisy in the lungs, and there that pilgrim completed his journey, and he made his way to his heavenly home. But I reference that story to you because he knew himself to be what we need to see ourselves as, sojourners. Sojourners. Like, what is a sojourner? It's a pilgrim. It's somebody who's traveling through a place. It's a traveler. And then you might ask the question, okay, if I see myself as a traveler, if I see myself as a pilgrim, what does that actually do? You're saying it's good, but what are actually the benefits, the good things that come from seeing oneself in that way? Well, there's quite a few good things that come from it. First, I would tell you that such an identification pleases God. That's where we start. If we see ourselves as sojourners, such an identification pleases God. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. He says, These all died in faith. Uh, A reference that would appear to be most immediately to the patriarchs. uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Sarah is referenced um, shortly after and shortly before this verse. Um, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, as some manuscripts note, Embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And if truly they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So if you look at verse 13, verse 13, the these that are referenced there appear to be the patriarchs. You could reference Hebrews 11, verse 9. They saw themselves as sojourners. That was the clear self-identification they had. Look at the text. Look at verse 13. They, quote, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's how they saw themselves. You know this. You've seen this even reading through the book of Genesis. You remember that when Jacob was speaking to Pharaoh, he told Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Genesis 47 verse 9. He saw himself as sojourning, traveling through this life. And they lived like it as well. Remember when Sarah died, Abraham, who was a wealthy man, right, didn't have land in which to bury her. Right? Because he had livestock and so on, and he was a wealthy man, but he lived in tents during his life. And so then he had to go buy ground from the sons of Heth. He said, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Genesis 23, verse 4. In fact, in Hebrews eleven 9, we're told that Abraham Isaac and Jacob spent their lives dwelling in tents. Doubtless they had opportunities to go back to their native land, but they desired a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, this is what I want to call your attention to, second half of verse 16, therefore, therefore in light of what? In light of the fact that they desired a better country. In light of the fact that they saw themselves as strangers in this world, this world was not their home, they desired a city, to use language from earlier in Hebrews, whose builder and maker is God. In light of that, we get to Hebrews eleven sixteen. therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, right? Isn't he called their God? Isn't he the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And despite the fact that they were sinful and despite the fact that they stumbled, nonetheless, by the grace of God, they believed the promises of God. They saw God as their God and they knew they were traveling through this world to a city whose builder and maker was God. They saw themselves as strangers and God was not ashamed to be called their God. The God of three men who dwelt in tents throughout their sojourning. It's a good reminder to us of what we're told earlier in Hebrews 11, that faith does please God, and that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Furthermore, seeing ourselves as sojourners not only is it pleasing to God, and that's the implication of the language in Hebrews 11:16, isn't it?? Right. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, so it's pleasing to Him. It's faith that's pleasing to Him when we see ourselves as pilgrims, because God has promised a heavenly country for His people. One that we know ultimately will be joined with Earth, right? in a new heaven, the new earth, and so on. But there are other reasons to see ourselves as sojourners, and the, and the benefits that come with it are many. Seeing ourselves as sojourners, I would argue, aligns our minds with truth. It's true. We are pilgrims passing through. And I would argue that truth is always protective and deception is always dangerous. I would argue that there are always downstream blessings of one kind or another from believing that which is true. And that there are always downstream problems from believing that which is false. And if you see yourself as a sojourner and as a pilgrim, you are believing something that's true. And there are many downstream blessings from that. I think seeing ourselves as sojourners can actually aid in our evangelism as well. Let me develop this and I'll tell you why I think that. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, the Apostle Paul told the Christians in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3 20. So as a reminder, you are not earth's worldling. You are heaven's citizen. And think about how your evangelism can be helped if you see yourself as a citizen of heaven. It's as though you're on a mission as an ambassador sent by the king of heaven to offer terms of peace to those who are in rebellion against the king of heaven, even as you yourself once were when you thought you were going to be saved by your works, when you raised your fist to the Lordship of Christ and you had yourself on the throne, if you see yourself as a citizen of heaven, you see yourself as having a short vapor of a life in which you can offer to others the terms of peace and forgiveness. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him alone as Savior. Look not to your works, look to Christ, repent of your sin, turn to Him, and you will have peace with the King of Heaven. You will be reconciled to God, and all your sins wiped away. So if you see yourself as a citizen of Heaven, it adds a sense of kind of weightiness and heavenliness to your identity in the here and now. And when you're speaking to those who are, like you once were, not reconciled to God through His Son, then you say, I have a mission here. I'm an ambassador. You can look at 2 Corinthians 5.20 for further encouragement as you seek to help people be reconciled to the king of your homeland. I think seeing ourselves as sojourners can fill Christians with hope. Life, as you know, is hard. Jesus said in this world, we will have tribulation. And it's helpful for Christians to know that you are not an aimless wanderer. You are a sojourner. Who every moment of your life is taking one step closer to your heavenly homeland, it fills you with hope. I also think seeing ourselves as sojourners can protect Christians against the uh, protect Christians from the danger of setting their minds on earthly things. Mm-hmm. Back to Philippians 3, I won't unpack the whole context, but Paul is telling believers in verse 17, "Brethren, join in following my example." And then he says to note such ones who live after that pattern and so on. But then he goes on in verses 18 and 19 and he talks about those who are enemies to Christ. He described them as those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And just as I was thinking about this, and I'll pass it on to you, I just was wondering what happens if my mind is set on earthly things. What are all the downstream problems of having a mind that's set on, fixed on, continually thinking about earthly things? I think there's a lot. I think we'll be prone to be disappointed. I think we'll be prone to be covetous. I think we'll be prone to be envious. I think there are some people, if they just set their mind on earthly things, they'll get three jobs, or four jobs, or five jobs, as many jobs as it takes to get the dream home. Because their minds are just set on heavenly things. Like, that's it. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to neglect the local church. I'm going to neglect familial responsibilities. I'm going to neglect outreach opportunities because my mind is set on earthly things. This is what it's all about. The things of earth can loom so large obscuring other responsibilities that ought to loom larger. I mean, if we just keep thinking about earthly things, we'll be more engrossed with earth. We'll be more content without heaven. We could be more enamored with earth and then we could become in disagreement with the way of heaven. More about that in a moment. You keep setting your mind on earthly things, I wouldn't surprise me if you, Christian, even though you should be freed from the fear of death, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 and so on. Doubtless we fight with that, but Jesus has died so that we can, among other things, be freed from that. But you keep setting your mind on earthly things, and death will become more and more foreboding to you. Being afraid to die will make life preservation a greater and greater priority at the expense of self-giving. Setting your mind on earthly things will make you less likely to speak to God. It'll make you less likely to think about God. Why? Because it's just not on your mind. Because your mind is filled with so many other things of the earth. And I think that could be very dangerous. There will be so many things in this world that can potentially undercut your loyalty to your homeland and to your king. Because remember, this world is not neutral. This world, although it is under the authority ultimately of our king, nonetheless the values of this world are in opposition to our king. This world, by and large, right, this world system, to use language from 1 John 5, is in the lap of the wicked one. This world is in rebellion against the homeland, so you and I need to keep remembering where our citizenship is and where our home really is. Richard Haan told a story about a British military officer who had been stationed in an African jungle. And one time, his uh, longtime friend was coming to visit the little hut where this British officer was staying. And he noted, the, um, this man, when he came to see his officer friend, that he found him in the hut dressed in a kind of formal attire, seated at a table that was beautifully set with silverware and fine china, And as the Han noted, the visitor, thinking his friend might have lost his mind, asked why he was all dressed up and seated at a table so sumptuously arrayed out in the middle of nowhere. And the officer responded by saying, Once a week, I follow this routine to remind myself of who I am, a British citizen. I want to maintain the customs of my real home and live according to the codes of British conduct, no matter how those around me live. I want to avoid substituting a foreign culture for that of my homeland. And that illustrates one of the benefits of Christians thinking often about heaven. Because if you think often about heaven, you are going to be more protected against embracing and adopting the values of a world system that is at enmity with your homeland and with your king. We want to exhibit the culture of heaven as it were here. And to do that really at the end of the day means exhibiting the character of our Father and imaging our Savior. Let me give you one other bonus thought. I think if you look through the Gospels, you could say we get quite a few depictions, quite a few words that remind us that Jesus lived as a sojourner. Remember, He spoke to people in John chapter 8, verse 23, and He told them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I mean, you just go through the scriptures and you see that Jesus, when he comes into this world, he doesn't lay in a manger that his parents even owned. You see, when Jesus dies and is buried, he is not buried in a tomb that he owned. Ultimately, I know he owns everything, right? Everything belongs to the Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills and so on. You look at Jesus during his earthly ministry, he had nowhere to lay his head. He lived like a sojourner. He lived like he was passing through. Remember, he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so if we live like sojourners, we are imaging, albeit imperfectly, our perfect savior to a greater degree. So there are a lot of reasons to think of yourself as a sojourner, son or daughter of God. Some other reasons why um, thinking about heaven can be incredibly helpful for the Christian life. Uh, Second reason. Thinking about heaven can help you be a better steward with your finances, which can be protective of and for your soul. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, this is during the Sermon on the Mount, he said the following Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you probably have noticed not too long ago, and there still are, a lot of uh, concerns regarding the FDIC. Bank crashes reminded many people of how unsecure temporal wealth could be. Temporal wealth was not secure then either in Jesus' day, though the dynamics were different. In Jesus' day, wealth often consisted of things like this clothing, for instance. That's why Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth can destroy. Because a lot of people would have clothing, and the clothing that they could then pass on to the next generation and so on, but it would be liable to moths, it could be destroyed. Jesus then goes on to say that treasures on earth can also rust. People's wealth consisted of that which could be rusted. Interesting thing about the word that's used here, the Greek word that's used there is brosis. It's a word that can be rendered as eaten up. So it can speak to that which can be corroded, like certain material which can rust or corrode. But you also think of, in those days, having like barns full of food and so on. And even those things were liable to be eaten up by rodents and animals and so on. So you could have clothing and moths could eat it. You could have material that could rust. You could have food that could be eaten. And then he gives this other example at the end where thieves do not break in and steal or where thieves can break in and steal. Then, like now, possessions were subject to thieves potentially breaking in and stealing those. Now, by the way, when Jesus says here, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth and so on, that is not, I would argue, an injunction to say the Proverbs and the wisdom of the Proverbs that a good man lays up an inheritance for his children's children and so on is to be thrown out the window. Or that you are not to observe the example of the ant who labors in the summer and prepares for the winter and so on. I think the idea at the end of the day is that we should not be storing up in this kind of continuous action, being in the habit of just collecting things for earthly living. I think that's the idea. Given to indulgence, given to extravagance, given to accumulation, that should not be the focus of one's life. That should not be the focus of one's portfolio. It could be dangerous. So what does Jesus tell his people? He tells his people, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now we know according to 1 Peter chapter 1 that there is an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for the people of God who are preserved. You can see 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. But as the ESV Study Bible notes regarding this verse, This, uh, quote, implies that people often have a choice between activities that lead to greater earthly reward in the present and those that store up greater future reward in heaven. A Safe investment is investment in heaven. Am I telling everybody in this room... What Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. I'm not telling you that. Again, balance this with other scriptural texts. You have responsibilities towards your family. You have responsibilities towards your posterity. posterity. You want to be a blessing, right, to the local church. You want to be a blessing to those who are poor. You have a whole bunch of things that you have to manage as a steward. But one of the things you do not want to do as a steward is when God blesses you with resources that you say, this is great. I'm going to indulge and store for myself and so on. It could be very dangerous. It could be very dangerous. Um, Jesus said in verse 21 very clearly, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you see yourself as storing up treasures in heaven, you'll be more protected against storing up things on earth, which will protect your heart, and your heart will be more set on your homeland, where you are, as it were, sending treasure ahead. It's protective. It's protective. It is protective, Helps protect you against falling in love with stuff. It could excite you. Some of you might remember in the message that I preached on Luke chapter 16, that one of the uh, exhortations that Jesus gives in Luke 16 verse 9 was essentially this. Use earthly wealth to make heavenly friends who will welcome you into everlasting habitations. You can listen to the message I preached on Luke 16 and one of the takeaways from the parable that Jesus tells there is use your earthly wealth to, as it were, make heavenly friends. Use your earthly wealth to get the gospel to go out, to help people see who Christ is. And that day may come where you enter heaven and the way in which you used your finances in the here and now led to people being saved and they say, hey, I'm such a one who came to Christ through your evangelistic ministry or through your support of that missionary. Welcome to your everlasting habitation. That should excite you. So you don't do this out of legalism. You do it out of faith and excitement. Thinking about heaven can help you endure trials. That's the third point I want to make. Thinking about heaven can help you endure trials. There's so much I can say about this. I want to call your attention to the example of Jesus. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 um, There we are told, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Now I'm going to say more about the verse that precedes that and proceeds that in a moment, but I just want to set before you the example of Jesus. Jesus had the cross set before him. And even as the cross was set before him, there was something else that was set before him, and that was the joy. What joy was set before him? The joy of bringing many sons to glory. The joy of doing his father's will and being obedient to the point of death because he loved his father. The joy of being exalted to the right hand of the Father, becoming obedient to the point of death, and then knowing that subsequently he would be exalted to the highest place, to the right hand of the Father. Per his high priestly prayer in John 17, him being glorified with the glory that he had with the Father from before the world began. So it's as though Jesus saw the cross, he despised the shame. And what came with the cross, the suffering, the ignominious suffering that he would go through, but he saw past it. And in that, he sets an example for us, who, although suffering is our portion to one degree or another in this fallen world, we can look at the joy that is set before us. For Jesus, on the other side of the cross, was a crown in the ultimate sense. And for us, in a lesser sense, on the other side of the cross. Is a crown. And we could be exhorted by the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In so many ways, thinking about heaven can help you get through the trials of the here and now. When your body's breaking down and your body just isn't doing what it used to do, you can remember, per Philippians chapter 3, that one day Jesus will appear and transform your lowly body, your humble body, into a glorious body like his glorified body. See, thinking about heaven can help you endure the trials of this life now. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. The examples could go on, right? Remembering that those who died in Christ will be seen again, that there is a forthcoming reunion, is something that Paul tells Christians to remember and to comfort one another with those words. So thinking about the eschatology that awaits us, the future things that awaits us, heaven, the return of Christ, and so on, the eternal state will help you, comfort you, encourage you in the here and now fourth point I want to make, how heaven helps us, thinking about heaven helps us in the here and now, is this. Thinking about heaven helps us to think about Jesus. Thinking about heaven helps us to think about Jesus. Heaven, if thought of rightly, will immediately and continually draw the Christian's attention to Jesus. Why? To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. To depart and be with Christ is, more literally, very much more better So if you're thinking about heaven, it'd be pretty crazy if you weren't thinking about Jesus. Like, if you spent two weeks, think about, let me illustrate this, think about this. If you were to spend two weeks thinking about heaven, right, and you got to the end of two weeks, and you're like, man, I did not think about what Revelation 21 says about the city being made of pure gold as clear as crystal. I'm so disappointed I didn't think of that. I don't think any of you are going to have that problem. I don't think any of you are going to say, I I really wish I would have thought of that. But if you got to the end of two weeks and you did not think about Jesus while you were thinking of heaven, you'd probably be in a state of spiritual panic and say, wait a minute, how enthralled am I with Jesus if I could think about heaven and not think of the king of heaven? Thinking of heaven for the believer will lead you at some point or another to think of Jesus, which, by the way, is something that we are continuously told to do in one way or another in the scriptures, in one way or another. Now, the writer of Hebrews, for instance, let me just unpack this briefly. Um, The writer of Hebrews repeatedly exhorted his readers in that direction. You could argue that a good portion, the the majority of the book of Hebrews, is just setting before you how much better and greater Jesus is. He's superior to angels. He's greater than Moses. He is the priest that's greater than the old covenant Levitical priesthood. He is the sacrifice who actually puts away sins once and for all. He is the mediator who's greater than the mediator of the old covenant and so on. And he's a mediator of a new covenant that's better than the old covenant. So the whole epistle of Hebrews in large measure is saying Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. But we do have some instances in Hebrews where we are told to fix our attention on Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 2 is one of those times. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, I just read it to you before, I'll read part of it again. We're told to run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's verse 1. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now the word that's used there for looking is a very interesting Greek word. Sometimes Greek words just come across exactly as they are in the English. And sometimes when you look at the Greek words, you get beautiful nuances that help you understand what's being communicated here. The Greek word that's used here is a combination of a preposition and another word. The preposition has the connotation of away from, and the other word, the verb, harao, speaks of beholding. So it's as though you are to look on Jesus in this way. You are to look away from other things, even as you behold him. It's as though you're not setting your mind on earthly things, but you're setting your mind on heavenly things and fixing your aim on Jesus. It's a looking away from. It's kind of like in those marital vows. In forsaking all others, you pledge yourself afresh in your thinking to him. It's a looking away from and a looking unto. It's a beautiful word that's used there. You look to him, the one who's enthroned in heaven, the one who is victorious, interceding, and glorified, the one who endured and achieve the crown. More about the benefits of that for your practical everyday living in a moment. In the very next verse, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we are told to consider him. Consider him. A Greek word that's only used there once. Analegizomai. It is connected to the word from which we get our word analogy. It's as though we are to, to use language from the BDAG lexicon, Reason with careful deliberation. And in the context, the analogy portion would be this. Consider him, I'm going to add my thought here, by way of analogy, the one who endured such hostility from sinners. In other words, so when you endure hostility from sinners, by way of analogy as it were, consider him who endured such hostility so that you will not become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider him. Carefully think about him. And then the writer of Hebrews even used another word telling us to think about Jesus earlier on. Hebrews chapter three, verse one, we're told to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. The Greek word that's used there, combination again of a preposition and a verb. Kata noeo. The idea is think along. Think up and down, as it were. Think through this carefully think hard about Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession real quick for your edification what does that do look at the context look at hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3 in hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 right we are told to run with endurance that race that is set before us so we are called to endurance Well, how are we to endure? Well, we're told by looking unto Jesus. And as we go on, we find out that he is the one who endured the cross. And then in verse 3, we are told to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. So, if you end up thinking about Jesus as you're thinking about heaven, it's going to help you endure. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. As you think about how Jesus endured the cross... Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And when you are persecuted, you will be helped by thinking of how Jesus endured hostility from sinners. And you will find that you yourself will not become weary and discouraged in your souls. There's a lot of downstream benefits from thinking about Christ. I would also encourage you to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 where we are told to set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth, Colossians 3, verse 2. We're told to seek those things which are above, but if you look at those four verses, they are filled with Christological statements. It's as though as Paul is talking about things above, he's telling us, I want to remind you who's above. Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ, who is your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have spiritual union with Christ. You are secure in Christ. The world is not going to see you as a definitive son or daughter of God. It's hidden in Christ with God. One day Christ will appear and you will appear with him in glory. So even as Paul in Colossians 3, if you read through it, is telling Christians verse 1 and 2, seek those things which are above and so on, he's filling those verses with Christological statements. As though thinking above is inextricably connected with thinking about Christ. And then there's practical import. You just look at Colossians 3 verse 5. Therefore, in light of doing these things and thinking about these things, therefore, this is the practical help it has for your life. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And finally, thinking about heaven can protect you from the fear of death. Thinking about heaven will lead you to think about Jesus and it can protect you from the fear of death. You've heard the expression that a person can be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. In reality, as we've discussed already in our teachings on heaven, if you want to be of the most earthly good, you will think long and hard about heaven. And as you think long and hard about heaven and the fact that your Savior is there and you are joined to him, you will become increasingly less fearful of death. And the more that you are not fearful of death, the more impact you can have on people's lives because your life will not be given to self-preservation. Your life will be given to giving yourselves for the glory of God and for others. My brother-in-law recently, um, he had sent me an account of John Harper, John Harper, some of you may know, is the pastor from Scotland who was one of the passengers on the Titanic. After the Titanic had struck an iceberg, as I was reading through this account and hearing the story, reading the story, I found that his uh, daughter was safely put aboard a lifeboat. She was wrapped in a blanket and she was told that one day um, she would see her dad again. One survivor said that she distinctively Uh, remembered hearing him say, John Harper, saying, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. You read the account, it goes on, and he is said to have said to the orchestra to play, nearer my God to thee. He is said to have knelt down, gathered around him people, and he prayed with a holy joy in his face, and he raised his arms in prayer to heaven. And as the account went on, we read that as the ship began to sink, he jumped into the icy waters, and then he was swimming from person to person, encouraging, exhorting, and beseeching people to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Yeah. I found the account of one, um, one Scotsman who, four years later, is said to have given this testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus that night. He said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting along on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow also on a piece of the wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away. But strange to say, brought him back a little later and he said, Are you saved now? (laughs) No, I said. I can honestly say that I am. He said again, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, Went down, and there alone in the night, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. And so this man, as John Harper swim to him, asking him, Are you saved? says, I am not, and so on, and he comes back and he's exhorting him to be saved. And then even after John Harper goes underwater, breathes his last breath, this man comes to faith in Christ. See, this man was heavenly-minded. However you want to unpack the term heavenly-minded, this was a man who knew his eternity was secure. He was a man who knew, I am going to heaven when I die because Jesus Christ is my Savior. By his grace, I have trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of sins so there he could swim in the icy waters and he could be given to the work of Christ, being obedient to the point of death. Saying even though I'm about to breathe my last like my Savior who was obedient in the most ultimate sense to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, being a mouthpiece for the Savior who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that testimony stirs me. I'm like, that is a man who has a view of heaven because he has a view of the Savior in that moment. And he was used mightily for great earthly good because he knew that his eternity was secure and that he was saved from the wrath of God. So those are just some ways in which studying about, thinking about, meditating on heaven and the Savior that is there can make a tremendous difference in the lives of the sons and daughters of God. May we be exhorted tonight to think much about heaven and the Savior who is there and one day will come from there back here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us who we are. Chosen, dearly loved, redeemed, sojourners. Thank you, Father, that your Son has gone to prepare a place for us, and we will most assuredly be where he is, and we will forever be with our Savior. So, Father, help us in the here and now to steward our lives for the glory of your name, for the spread of the gospel, living in such faith that pleases you, By your grace, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.